0: Anthony Garcia is a sought-after keynote speaker, passionate about unlocking the high performer lying dormant in every sales professional. Anthony created his first business and built a team of over 100 sales reps at the age of 22 and has gone on to coach and mentor hundreds of top-performing sales professionals. He's an expert in sales training, recruiting, goal achievement, and motivating salespeople to peak performance. As a 17-year veteran of sales, Anthony has achieved top accolades in direct sales, business to business sales, and medical sales. Anthony and his leadership team oversees a $500 million medical sales business. As the author of Catapulting Commissions, he provides strategies to sales professionals looking to achieve the next goal. He focuses on complacent sales syndrome, goal achievement, and the path to difficult decisions. Straight from the boardroom to the microphone, I'm April Garcia, and this is Pivot Me, easily applied tools and hacks to get you ahead. This isn't just a podcast. This is an upgrade for your life. Helping good people become even better. This is Pivot Me. Welcome, Anthony Garcia, to Pivot Me hey what's up what's up dude <laughs>
1: i'm excited to be here april thanks for having me this
0: is awesome i'm so glad we could make this work so i want to dig into your book i want to know about the details and the catalyst and all that fun stuff about catapulting commissions but first let's let's get to know you a little bit better so tell us what what got you into this type of work
1: so into the type of work of salesmanship you know it's it's really really funny um i have wanted to be an attorney. And no knock on my friends who are attorneys. That was my lifelong passion. But as I was growing up, I just had a natural gift of gab and I was always able to sell something. And when I was looking for a college job, I found an internship opportunity to work for a sales organization. I fell in love with it and I continued down that path. And then it got to the point where um, I was always, you know, pivotally thinking like, okay, maybe it's time to to, to give up the sales and, and go, go to law school, go to law school. And I, I think I made it two or three mental shifts that I was going to go to law school. Uh, and then it got to the point where, uh, the income I was making was more than my friends that were attorneys. And I was like, you know what guys, I'm just a salesman. I'm, I'm, I'm going to own it. I'm going to be the best at it. And you know what? I'm going to hire you to be my attorney. Cause at this point I'm not, I'm not going back that way. So <laughs> that's, that's what, that's what started my career in salesmanship. And then, uh, the book and, and launching the, the brand, Catapulting Commissions, it really came from a component of I've managed sales teams in different industries with, with different income levels. Some people that were just making enough money to get the bills uh, paid. And, and now I manage a team where, where everybody on my team exceeds six figures in income. Wow. And, and when I look at the fundamental principles that I'm teaching or training, what I was teaching to kids who were, you know, who were happy to make 30 grand a year. Are the same. I'm teaching to individuals who make three hundred and fifty or four hundred grand a year. It's it's the same foundation. So that so the thought came: How do I bring this to market and share with somebody else? That and it was it was selfish, right? And the the reason I launched was selfish for me because I remember when I was in that kid thinking of how do I make this big income commission sales. These guys must know some cool tricks. They must have know some gnarly secrets. And the truth is is that's that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth is it's a foundation that's set a goal plan that's put in place and a strategy that's executed it doesn't matter what the product is the process is the same the mental approach is the same and so that's what con- that's what started me to launch the catapult and commissions brand
0: Wow that's awesome. I um, I have so many questions out of that. <laughs> one, one is I want to come back to you being a 22-year-old and how 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 you created this business. But before we get to that, you said uh, interesting uh, interesting point. You said everyone on my team makes six figures or at least six figures. So Correct. that that's that's unique. That doesn't always happen. Would you I, I know there's multiple things that contribute to that, but would you say that that's in your selection process of picking the people? Is it in your mentorship? Is it that you or the company has a really good process in place to get people to that level? What, what contributes to that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. So one, I think it's, I think it's a, a combination of two things. One, I, for me to bring somebody that hasn't been tested in another sales industry is a lot. And I'm not saying I never did my you know one of my top performing reps who became rookie of the year i swiped her up right out of college it's a it's she's a unicorn it doesn't happen all the time i typically look for someone that's been in sales 7 to 10 7 to 12 years has all the accolades and achieved results elsewhere and when i interview i say look if you come here and you make less than six figures the likelihood of you being here in year 2 is very slim because everybody on my team has a certain level of accountability and we're in a high pressure environment so I think two parts of of how that is, how that's unique. One, everybody I hire isn't motivated by money and they'll say they're motivated by money and they'll tell me, Hey, I'm motivated by money. But when I pull back the layers of the onion and I start talking to them, it's not really the money. It's what the money can provide for them that they're chasing after. Right? So, you know, a guy on my team is, is, is putting his daughter through college right now and his wife hasn't worked for 18 years. That's a lifestyle he chooses to, to create. And that's what motivating him. So the money's not there. It's what the money can provide. So once I identify that people are motivated by the external factors and not just the money, the success typically comes and the money follows. Um, So that's one. And then two, uh, I think the, the reason I have reps that achieve over six figures is they all agree on one fundamental thing. The art of sales is a skill that requires constant practice. I don't have a person on my team that's like, oh, I've been doing this for, 18 years or 20 years, or I've been, you know, a two-time, you know, President's Club winner or top rep of the year. I don't have to do this no more. We, we all study, we all pound pavement, we all learn. And, you know, there's there's times where uh, the coaching I have with a new rep versus a tenured rep who's been with me for over 20 years is different. But the common denominator is they're coachable. So that's the two things is everyone on my team is still coachable and everybody on my team is motivated by something other than the money. And the money is just a byproduct of what they want.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, you connect them to their why. Because a lot of people do think that their why is money, especially in the sales industry, it's easy to think that the why is money. But then like to your point, like you pull on that thread a little bit, and you're like, Oh, no, no, there's your why. And it's much bigger. And if you connect people to your why, the how becomes absolutely um, achievable. Absolutely. Well, that's awesome. So tell me about um being twenty two and building this business and eventually getting hundred sales reps so I love that you said that I had the gift of gab so <laughs> would I never guess you wanted to be a lawyer? That was awesome. Um, tell us about uh this experience of uh building a business so young
1: yeah so i uh i started i started with um selling kitchen knives in, 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 college for Cutco cutlery. So I, I did that. I did that as a summer job and then it became a year round job. Then it became a job that I could do around, uh, football. When I played in college, I graduated college, um, at the age of 21. I mean, I just turned 21, graduated college. What am I going to do now? And I had an opportunity to go into the, the management program with Cutco, which is essentially becoming uh, my own franchisee for lack of better words and grab a territory. And I became my, a business owner solidified. I went out at 22 years old. I moved to uh, a different city in California. I negotiated a lease. So I remember walking into an office building and the guy was like, you know, this lease, you know, at the time he's like, I'm leasing it for $2,700 a month. And I'm like, dude, I'll give you 1100. And he looks at me and I'm like, he's like, absolutely not. I was like, I give you 1100. And if you lease it, I need two weeks and I'll move. And and, you know, no, it's not going to work. And then I kept negotiating. He had it open for eight months. So I left, I came back a couple of days later. Hey man, my offer still stands, dude. I'll give you 1100. If you, if you want to show it, you can show it. But if you lease it out from underneath me, I just ask for a two week notice. I'll relocate my business, but I'm, I really need something 22. I don't, you know, this is, this is it, man. And he gave it to me. And I thought it was awesome. And I was there for three years almost. And he, I had one, I had one rent increase and I was like, this is awesome. And he, he loved it because bills were always paid on time. And, uh, You know, that was so that was like the first thing going into a different area. But the team I developed, I remember putting on a business phone and at the time newspapers were popular. right? I put an ad in the newspaper that I was looking for sales reps and uh, I was really looking for sales reps and and a sales rep that wasn't good to be my receptionist because I didn't have one. So the the phone call rings and I'm receptionist and salesperson. And I think the second person that came through my door, she had a, a decent voice. She was like, you know, sales really isn't for me. I said, well, I'm, I'm looking for an administrative assistant or secretary to help me. You interested? She's like, absolutely. Deal. You're hired. Let's start. And so I put ads in the newspaper. I went around to all the colleges. I flyered. Um, I asked anyone who came in who they would knew. And I started recruiting a team. And so quickly, my team had three sales reps. And I think my very first team meeting I put together, I waited for like a month from my first team meeting because I don't want everyone to know that there was no team. I just I acted <laughs> like there was a team. So I said, you know, you're joining the and, – and at the time we were – you know, or at the time it was in Bakersfield. You're joining the Bakersfield district of Cutco Cutlery. I'm excited to have you here, guys. Our team is phenomenal. We are going to be a top-performing team. But nobody knew we didn't have a team. I just kept, you know. <laughs> I had a team. So a month later, I put together our first team meeting and I had like maybe like 13 people show up and they were all excited to be on the team. None of them knew they'd only been there for less than four weeks. (laughs) So so that was month one. And then month two, that team meeting turned about 50 or 60. Same thing. And I was like, hey, guys. And then at month two, I said, hey, guys, you know, what's really exciting about our team. Summer's in full swing thing. All your friends have graduated. They're coming home. We're going to expand this team and get bigger. We're going to build a team of 100 people. And I knew that was my goal. Uh, you know, it was it was definitely nerve-wracking to put myself out and say it. But everybody got behind me. So I'm like, who do you have that could benefit working with us this summer? So my team of 60 turned to over 100 within three months. I, was, I stood in front of my team meeting. And at the time, you know, social media and pictures weren't as savvy. But I really wish I had a picture of meeting one. And 12 weeks later, look at this meeting. And it was... Then you know well, that's a whole different conversation. Then I learned the challenge of having a team of hundred people with one person. It was. <laughs> I
0: was going to say, a, how did you yeah, manage them?
1: It was yeah. a learning experience. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a learning experience. You know, it was. I used the analogy that at, at, at I never forget the team meeting. It had over hundred people, in it, and I used the analogy. I said, like, guys, working with me, working in this division, it's kind of like a, moving on a on a fast train, a, a freight train. Do you know what a freight train is? And some knew, some didn't. I said, here's the deal: the freight train is going to go full speed to the end of our line. My goal is to have as many of you on this freight train as possible. Will I lose some of you? Possibly. It's not intentional, but if you just hold on to me and I hold on to you, I promise you, you'll get to the finish line with me. And uh that was that was such a learning experience. There's times I, I cried at night. I was working you know 6 a.m. to one in the morning. Uh, you know, I, I was everything at that time. And it the what I learned that first summer was so helpful because the next summer and the and the next couple years of building that team. That first time, I had to develop people because I was like, "Hey, I need to put together your your sales kit." And so, on my first f- first weekend, I put together sales kits. I sat on a Friday night, put together kits. I'm like, "I'm never going to do this again." So the next week, I asked somebody, "Hey, man, you want to hang around me, put some sales kits together? I'll buy some pizza. Deal." <laughs> and so then I had someone hang out to help me. And so my development became, I just needed help. So that was the first level. Then the second level was, "Let me teach you how to do this. Let me teach you how to make some money." And, uh, you know, I quickly turned my team and I, I, I continued to have a team of over 100 people multiple years in a row. But then it got easier. You know, then I had a staff of nine. I had a staff of 10. I had a staff of 12. So I would take my staff of 12 and say, OK, these eight reps are your responsibility and we're going to put them on your team. And I quickly built an organization that changed my life. So I ran it with 100 people by myself. I ran it with over 100 people with a team. I choose it with a team any day of the week. But I wouldn't appreciate it if I didn't do it by myself at first.
0: Oh, I bet. I bet. It, uh, what a freaking amazing story. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I can imagine this. Oh, man. So I, that's the ultimate, you know, fake it till you make it story. But what I hear in there is a ton of confidence. Where did you get all this confidence that you felt you could lead this team to success?
1: You know, I, I hate saying it. You know, if, I'm sure my mom's gonna listen to this. My mom always told me I could do anything I wanted to do, and I probably took that as a kid and ran with it. I I developed a level of confidence at a young age, where the the older I got, the confidence I developed was really just it was my masking tool because I was terrified. I was I was completely nervous, and so I would go and and it's one of the concepts we talk about in the book. I would go into the bathroom and I would look at myself in the mirror and I would say, "You are going to do this. You are going to do this. You're not going to fail." And I just remember my mentor at that time would tell me, you know, because I was terrified. No one knows you're brand new unless you tell them. So that was it. So I mean, I, I'm sure if I look back, right? I'm, I'm 22 years old. I have a suit that's probably not tailored that doesn't fit right. I have a baby face, and so I'm sitting here pretending, you know, running like I'm running a multi-million dollar organization. Nobody knew, and so you know that that fake confidence was really it was a tool. So mm-hmm. you know. It's it's funny that I think about it now. As I've progressed and, and I've aged in my career, I, I have the same level of confidence, if not more, but I speak less. So as I've gotten older, there's a level of confidence with that comes with listening. Because when I was younger, I was just, you know, Wolf of Washers, just firing off things left and right and getting people jazzed up and getting people excited to be here. And now, you know, my team's much more successful. It's a lot smaller. Um, and It creates a, um, the confidence is a different approach, but it's still there. So it it was a tool for me. hundred percent was a tool.
0: Yeah. How much did you, you mentioned that you had a mentor that gave you some advice. Um, Did you have mentors along the way and how much did that influence you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've had, I had several different mentors along the way. Um, I think some of my best mentors to this day are still some of my best friends. The relationship has changed. We're in different industries, but I still call or reach out to them when I run into challenges. Some of my mentors I reached out while while putting my book together and saying, hey, let me let me pick your brain on this or, hey, will you read this and give me some honest, harsh feedback? No fluff. So I I think everyone needs a mentor. I think everyone needs somebody in that corner to pick you up. No one's going to win by themselves and you need a mentor that's outside your your inner circle of family, right? So, uh-huh. you know, I tell my team, your mentor can't be your spouse, right? Your mentor can't because your spouse is, is going to want you to do well. Your mentor can't be a parent, can't be someone who loves you that much because they're always going to want you to do well and they're always going to paint things. In them. You want a mentor that's going to say, hey, based on what you said you wanted in life, you're not doing that and you need uh-huh. to adjust and, and go in a different direction today. So I had some really strong mentors and, and that first business, my mentor, you know, it was he laughed anytime. It was just, it was, he laughed at us out of your train, you're prepared. You got this. And, you know, once a week we had the hard to hard business talk. but for the most part, he was just controlling my emotions, which (laughs) I thought was, you know, it was was, was my version of mentor slash shrink, but he helped me out a lot. So
0: they often straddle that line, don't they? So when you were doing this, I'm thinking, I'm imagining this, you know, as you said, baby face kid, that's going to go, okay, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to move cities and I'm going to go rent a big space. And, People must have thought you were crazy. I mean, like family and friends, were they behind you on this or were they going, whoa, Anthony, pump the brakes? Like, think about this.
1: Yeah, no. It was more of the latter. I don't think I had anybody that was like, hey, this is a great job. I mean, I came to my mom. I was like, hey, this is what I'm going to go do. And I had had churned down. Um, job opportunities and interviews with, and I well, I wanted to get into entry level sales, but there was, you know, several B2B companies. There were several pharmaceutical companies. There was some opportunities to, to get other internships. Um, there was an opportunity to go to grad school or, or, or law school at the time. And so when I came and said, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. It was, you're absolutely crazy. And I remember having the conversation with my mom. I said, mom, here's the, and I said, mom, my worst case scenario here, I moved to a different city. I I've saved up, you know, at the time, I think a uh, 20 grand or something like that. And I was like, you know, I saved 20 some grand to start a business. If I fail, I lose 20 grand. I got some experience. I come home. I sleep on your couch. I start over. I have I have no bills other than myself. When we can't, I mean, my I, my cars paid off. When I can't afford myself when I mean I'm I'm OK. And so that's how I sold it to my mom. If I fail, I'm going to come home. Well, I've been in Bakersfield for. 14 years now
0: still not sleeping on your mom's couch,
1: <laughs> still not sleeping on my mom's couch. But that was kind of how the conversation started was, uh, and it quickly went from you're crazy to then when my mom, you know, she came to my office one time and she came and she said, you know, she was trying to find it. She, and this is when I had a full team already and she was looking for me and they're like, Oh, he's, he's in his office. Let me go get him. And she was like, excuse me. No, that's my son. I'm gonna walk. in. And so my mom walks past my newly hired secretary and is like, this lady says, I can't walk in to see you. Mom, like, hey, mom, no one knows I'm 22. You can't just barge into my office, mom.
0: <laughs> it's a so, dead giveaway when they yeah. see my 42-year-old mom. Like, they yeah. know I'm young men. <laughs> exactly. So,
1: But once she saw the team and she came to a few events, she got on board right away. And she was like, oh, you're, you're building something different and you'll, you'll be okay.
0: Sure. Wow. I think it's it's so important to understand sort of the the humble beginnings to a successful career because a lot of people that are that are making a pivot that are doing this big change they don't realize that not everyone's on board. In fact, most people aren't on board and you have to do it anyhow. And that's the piece that people sometimes forget that everyone might be in your ear saying no don't, don't do this. This is a bad idea. No, let me rephrase it. Not everybody. Um, People that love you, that want to protect you or are afraid, or there's a whole host of reasons why they do that. um, Mm -hmm. But that sometimes you just have to go ahead without it. The other thing is um, when we're talking about confidence, I think a lot of people wait for the confidence before they go do something. And they don't realize that confidence comes from the doing it's from telling yourself a different story and just go in and do it. And then you become confident.
1: You know, I think that that's that's so valuable insight. And I'm glad you said that, April, because uh, I tell my team and I've had people get upset at me. I say, hey, once I, you're hired on and, and you've gone through our training program and you're out in the field, you're going to spend three months in the field before I ever come visit you. I'm not, and, and they, they kind of me like you're not going to train me. I'm like, No, I'm going to train you. You're going to go through our, our training program. You're going to learn our process. You're going to learn everything we have to do. But I'm not going to come with you for three months. Here's why. Sink or swim, buddy. You're not going to drown and you're going to develop some confidence from bumping your head and so when it came time to to launch my business again into any business that's kind of been my motto the whole life you know what let me just get out there i'm sure i'm gonna fail i'm sure i'm gonna hit some roadblocks but you know what the confidence i developed from just getting through this forced adversity as i like to call it Mm -hmm. it creates who we are today
0: are you struggling to stay focused still need to get things checked off that to-do list, but finding it harder than ever. Be productive, be effective, and perform at your best. In my new digital course, Multiply Me, I'm gonna show you how to be laser-focused and wildly effective. You will learn how to get three times as much done, but in less hours a day. I'm much more focused, so much more done in my day. Far
1: more time effective.
0: I needed to make a change and this was it.
1: Amazing.
0: Life-changing. You can literally multiply your output. You can master a productivity tool today that will give you a high performance advantage in any season. Take back your time so you can enjoy the life you've earned. Join us now at pivot-me.com backslash multiply me we've created a free guide, four simple steps to getting more done in less time. In these short videos, I quickly show you the four main steps to productivity, to getting more done, the right things done, but in less time. To download your free copy and have it in your inbox ASAP, go to pivot-me.com. Get the four simple steps to getting more done in less time. Join us now at pivot-me.com backslash multiply me. Tell us about a time where maybe it was this pivotal moment where you're like, I don't know if this is for me or maybe I made the wrong decision. Like, was there a time where you thought about throwing in the towel and and how did you get out of that?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, I probably thought that first week, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, the idea of of quitting and, and giving up comes to my mind more often than I'm proud to admit, right? There's many times there's a reason to quit. There's always something. And it was my middle of my second year. So I ran this office for three years, right? So in the middle of my second year, I had a a young, young kid shy as can be, but I developed him and I developed him in, in the middle of of the summer. It was crazy. It was hectic. I was missing friends' weddings. I was miss. I was sacrificing so much of my social life, right? So this is the second year. I'm 23 years old. Your social life is everything. And I'm sacrificing so much for a business here. And I had a hard time with it. But I had a young kid come to me, had been with me for about two months, and said, hey, dude, how can I do what you're doing next summer? And for me, that was like my aha moment was like, okay, I'm teaching you how to sell stuff, teaching you how to make money. But I'm missing what I'm really... I'm teaching you how to be a business owner. I'm teaching you how to think for yourself. Uh, I'm developing you into a successful uh, professional that's gonna develop later in life. And that moment for me was like, okay, any doubts of quitting, you have people that are are counting on you. So as long as I have people counting on me, the idea of quitting, even though it comes up, I never executed on it unless it was a plan move to, hey, it's time for me to change or or move in a different direction.
0: What did it look like? You said you ran that business for three years you transferred out of it was that was that a tough decision was that, especially if you've worked so hard to create something i find a lot of times we we get our identity really tied into something we've worked that hard in yeah how did you how did you transition
1: yeah so the big area where i i think my aha moment and it was time for me to transition uh, third year in 24 years old and with all honesty i got homesick i was i was homesick i had you know again new city didn't know anybody and when I when I committed to it, to moving to a new city, I told myself, you know, I'm gonna give myself three years. And if in three years, you know, no matter what happens in year one, two, three, I'm going to make it to that three year mark. So I hit that three year mark and I, I was a little homesick. I, 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 you know, I, was, I was really far. I was away from my family. And I was like, you know, what? I'm, I'm going to move home. And I I had a colleague that that was working with me that approached me. It was like, hey, man, I know you've talked about moving. You know, if that's something you really want to do. I'll, you know, I'll step in and, and, you know, I'll pick up, I'll pick up your business. I'll pick up your team. So it made me feel comfortable. that people behind, I was leaving. were going to have somebody in place. So it was a very difficult decision because I remember pulling in my, yeah, I didn't pull in the whole team. I just pulled in my, my, my key staff, pulled them in on a Sunday night. And I sat them down in my office and it was like a, a team of like 14 at the time. And I said, Hey guys, you know, what I'm gonna share with these is not gonna be easy. It's gonna be really difficult. But uh, when I started this journey, I knew that it was, you know, a three-year bid for me and I wanted to see what options existed for me in future. This was a stepping stone in my career and I, and I, you know, my time's coming to end here. Um, and it was a very difficult. That was the first time I told people I was leaving that people cried. I was like, you know, I, I, I made an impact and that meeting probably set the foundation for, okay, I'm leaving this team, but the idea of, of leading and developing other teams, I'm going to do again in the future. And I have, and, uh, but that, you know, you'll never forget your first one. And so, I made that decision as I knew it was a stepping stone. I knew I wanted to move on to bigger and higher things and and more more impactful. And that was that was why I left.
0: Wow, that's amazing. What what do you wish? I, we're kind of jumping into some of the later questions that I want to jump into the book. But what do you wish you would have known at the beginning? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> everything. Everything. Right. <laughs>
1: so I in the beginning, if I had to go back and and circle the young myself. I wish I knew financial management skills from the get-go. So that is, and I look back and I and I tell everyone, you know, did I fail at my first business? You know, I learned some lessons, right? Was I successful? Yeah, I had to, I experienced a level of success, but I was also my own worst enemy. And where I was my own worst enemy was, um, you know, I paid money for for a financial guy and a bookkeeper. And I remember his conference call that I would have would be the conference call I would always cancel. I'm like, ah, I got to, dude, I got to do something. I got to do something. And slowly but surely, my P and L statements weren't looking. I was like, man, I'm I'm working all the time. And you're telling me I have no money. This is how does this? This doesn't add up. I feel like I have money. I see my business account. There's money there. But you're telling me I and so my money management skills. I wish I would have had that dialed in the beginning. I really wish there was a financial literacy course that. Is taught to kids at a young age because when you learn it by trial and error, it's a really expensive habit to learn. On the mm-hmm. flip side, now that I've learned it, I will never make any of those mistakes again. I'm much more savvy, but I definitely paid my dues. And so that's that's the one thing that I think I wish I knew in the beginning of my business that I I didn't know. So
0: mm-hmm. that's that's really good. And that's it's funny because that comes up a lot where it's it's something we learn afterwards and it costs a lot of money. Uh-huh. That comes up. For a lot of people. Um, so let's talk about the book and then we'll, afterwards we'll talk about like success habits and things yeah, that you you for, sure. for success. So first, what, what was the catalyst for writing uh, catapulting commissions?
1: The idea behind it was anytime I wanted to achieve a sales goal, right? I knew I wanted to achieve a sales goal. There was a financial reward. Dude. I wanted a higher commission check, whether it was higher commissions for the year or a one-time commission, whatever industry I was in at the time. But there was a process. That I followed, and there was a process I followed every time, and it never changed, and it never changed from when I had a process when you know I took my first sales job while I was still in college to now that you know I have a team and my process is a little is a little evolved with the team because now I try to manage the team dynamics, but as an individual contributor, this was the process. So it was you know a three part process. One was getting you know a clear mental approach. It's very similar to if uh, a golfer is going to go hit a golf ball. The approach is everything, right? They sit in the back. They look at the golf ball. They look at the field. They identify any possible outcome. So that was the first step. Then the second step was, uh, you know, I'll use another sports analogy. It's it's clear, actionable items that are planned in advance. When it's time to make an adjustment, how are you going to track your success? What are your metrics going to be? So all of that was planned. And then the third one was creating a surrounding strong environment. You have to have an environment that's that's supporting your success, because if not, your environment's going to bring you down. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I got I got frustrated when I it it really started the the putting the book together. I was listening to a podcast and I heard someone say that sales was easy. And I, I listen. He's and and he's a he's a very well respected contributor in this space. But as he talked about how easy sales was. I'm like, no, you're you're wrong. That that's 100% wrong. Yes, the art of selling and saying, "Hey, April, would you buy my stuff today?" That's easy. But what you don't see in the mental approach and all the stuff behind it, that's difficult, and it takes a plan. And so that's what catapulty commissions really is. It's a plan or a how to achieve that next sales goal. And that was the original title was, uh, you know, the book has has 11 questions to ask yourself, and they all start with "What if." So it was gonna be "What if." questions to ask yourself to achieve your next sales goal. Horrible title by the way. I'm so glad we changed it. But <laughs> so then it became catapulting commissions, which is the result of achieving your next sales goal. And so that's where the idea came.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So let's let's specifically talk about the book. So um you said that complacent sales syndrome is robbing companies of millions of dollars in profit. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, this is this is a hard one, right? Because I didn't identify complacent sales syndrome until I started getting into the highest performers of salespeople. When I started being salespeople who were who you know were in the top income tax bracket, that's Uh when I was like, okay, this is a real problem. And it's a real problem at all levels. We just don't you know, I just never really noticed it until I started getting into the high performers. And what complacent sales syndrome is, it's a, a trained sales professional. So they know how to do their job. They no longer perform at maximum potential and they start to accept results that are good enough to cover the basic necessities of life. So you have a sales team. Everyone knows what they're supposed to do. They can make decent money. And you know what? Their response is, I do just enough to get by. I cover the basic necessities of life. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, where that robs companies is, you have a group of individuals in your organization that are going to hit 100%, 102, 101, and that's it. The amount of people that want to achieve and hit 200, 300, 400 percent to their plan and expectations is becoming smaller and smaller. But organizations need those people because you also have a people in your organization that aren't going to hit the 100 percent, that are going to hit the 70, the 80, your bottom feeders. So this middle group of of your of your sales organization, they are robbing your entire organization of million dollars in revenues because of the simple fact they don't have a goal or plan in place to become a top performer, they, they've lost that motivation. They lost that drive. And how do you pick that drive up? And, you know, I, I would, you know, I, I've had a strong debate with, with the mentor of mine that we talked about complacent sales syndrome. And I would, this is where I go say, it's not the money for somebody. I said, you know, I've, I've been in that position before I've been the top performer. And, and I remember thinking, what's the difference of a 50 grand or 60 grand or 70 or hundred grand of my W2 or my 1099 at the end of the year. And when you start losing that, you're like, ah. Oh, You've already lost. So it's not a money thing. So that complacent sales syndrome is something that is real. And I think that we have to start identifying who those people are in our organization. And you have to push them to get more. And you have to identify what that more is for them because they're not going to do it just for the organization. So mm-hmm. that's that's what complacent sales syndrome is. And I don't think that uh, we tackle that enough as, as sales leaders or sales management. We don't look at people and say, okay, hey, I know you can get 100%. Why don't you get 140%? Why don't you get Mm -hmm. 150%? We just don't have that conversation. And if we do, some of these people are like, oh, I just need to get to 100%. It covers my bills and I'm happy in life. Yeah. It's hard to fight that. It's hard to have an answer for that. So how do you motivate and inspire that person? And that's the challenge that sales leaders have is how to motivate that group of people.
0: So complacent sales syndrome, this can be something that's at the high level of someone that looks like they're a top performer, but they're really not playing at the top of their game.
1: Exactly. Exactly. 100 percent if we were to take this to complacent sales syndrome to complacent basketball players complacent nba players they are all skilled they are all high performing professionals they are in an elite group because of their skill set and their ability to perform but are they getting up every morning at 6 a.m to go practice are they getting up every morning and shooting a thousand free throws are they working out seven days a week are they fully still committed to 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 their diet you know and you think about you know some of these some of these individuals, four or five years once they're in the league, they're not doing what they did when they were rookies anymore. And so salespeople fall in that same category. Right. When you're new to an industry or you have a goal or you have a, a, a chip on your shoulder, you have to prove something. You know, you're the first one in the office. You're the first one making calls. You're consistently studying. You're working the latest. Once you get good. Right. And you and you hear that this is mass when oh my territory runs itself or things are on autopilot. I know my customers are going to call me. I, I know I can account on this for that's great. But if you did what you did in the beginning and you have that going, you're going to be that much more successful. It's just people mm-hmm. don't put the two and two together.
0: That makes complete sense. And what, what I heard when you were saying it's not about the money, what I heard is that you have to connect them to a why again.
1: Yeah, 100 percent. And that's I'm, I'm a big believer of that. And, and you know, the more or the more you chat with me and you, you read the book, I mean, a lot of the book discusses on setting the why and establishing it. You know, we painted in, 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 in a different light. But the bottom fruit is you have to have a reason to do something.
0: What would you say is the secret to being a top performer in sales?
1: I think the number one secret is is who you surround yourself with is who you're going to become. Right. So uh, yeah. a, a mentor of mine uses a joke in in, in his keynote. He says, if you see a, t- a group of five idiots and you're in line with that group, what are you? You're the sixth idiot. If you're in a <laughs> and if you're in a group of five millionaires and you're the one that's there, what are you? You're the next millionaire. Right. And when you go into different sales industries and you want to achieve top accolades, right. Foundation one, got to have a a strong goal plan, strong commitment to your craft. I think that goes without saying, right? And anyone who gets in in sales as a career understands that. But what I think that people don't understand is the environment you put yourself in is directly reflective of the success you're going to experience. So I, in every industry, I found who the top performers were and I shadowed them. I, I use the analogy. I'm like, dude, if you sat here and told me to go vegan for a month and I could perform the results you were doing, I would go vegan for a month. Now, I'm not vegan and nothing against vegans, but what I'm simply saying is is that's the dramatic change that I would make to experience the level of success. So that hunger came from leveling up my group. And if I ever found myself in my my network of people who I speak to, if I'm ever the smartest, if I'm ever the wealthiest, if I'm ever the most successful, my group's not strong enough and I level up. And I don't Mm -hmm. just say, hey, you're not you can't be in my circle no more. I just I slowly start making my way to a group that's going to pull me up because if you Mm -hmm. if you're in that group where you're the smartest, the wealthiest, the most successful, it does the opposite. It starts to pull you down. Mm -hmm. So that's the one thing I think that has helped me be successful in multiple industries over and over again. I always found who's the top performer, who who's who's doing what I want to do and how can I befriend them? And you know, I found various different ways to befriend people, but I made them my circle. And some of these people have, are now my lifelong friends. And, and, you know, some have gone on to be significantly more successful. Some have said, hey, you know, I've, you know, I've passed them. They're like, you know, this is where I'm at. This is my my top mark. <laughs> and, you know, what? I'm thankful that they served the purpose for me at the time I had them in my life.
0: Yeah. And peer, I think I, I love that you said, you know, having clear goals. Absolutely. But peer group was huge because I really think P, it, it's easy for people to minimize the importance of your peer group. It's so easy. I love, um, you know, Tony Robbins says your life is a direct reflection of the expectations of your peer group. Uh, a funny way that Steve Harvey says, if nine of your friends are broke, you'll be the 10th. <laughs> But it all comes back to the same thing. And we we minimize peer group because oftentimes our peer group is compi- comprised of uh, the people that we sit next to in the office and the people we live next to. And we have to be so intentional about that because that... Absolutely affects our lives. So you don't get to walk through the pool without getting wet. And I love that you, uh, yeah, that you mentioned peer group and 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 being intentional about that. It, you have to design your peer group. You can't. It can't just happen by circumstance. And it sounds like you very intentionally designed your peer group.
1: Absolutely. I, you know, my wife recently got in, uh, into medical device sales, and she's she's in a, a great company, and you know, climbing her ranks and become a top performer. And one of the things I've shared with her, she's noticing, she's like, you know, as you start to grow, you are you have to work harder to develop that circle. And you have to be real. It's a lonely place in sales, right? If you're in, in any sales industry, it's a very lonely place because the higher you perform, you'll start to find out that eagles, you know, there's not as many eagles as there are as seagulls, right? There, you, start, <laughs> you start climbing at a higher level. So you have to find who's that next eagle I'm associated with. And if, if you don't do that, if you don't actively pursue your network, you're doing yourself an injustice. So I'm a big believer in that.
0: If you don't actively pursue your network, you're doing yourself a huge injustice. That's, that's a great point. I love that point. If none of your friends are runners and you want to run a marathon, you're going to have a problem. So you got to, you got to go find some running friends.
1: 100%. And you also have to eliminate the friends that are going to hold you back. So it's okay to eliminate friends and, and. And I I do share that in the book. It's okay. They're going to care about you, but where they're going in life. And if you're going in a different direction at a certain point, it's okay to acknowledge and just accept it, own it. Right. It took me for longest time. Like I wanted to make friends with everybody. Then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to own it. I'm going this way. You're going that way. I still love you. And I, I think it hit me the hardest when, when friends go separate ways. One of my best friends in the world is an Olympic athlete. She's an Olympic medalist actually. And when she was training, For her, uh, when she was training to make the Olympic team, she's now on the Olympic team set to go to her second or working to go to her second Olympic Games. I don't really bug her when she's training. Why? Because I have, you know, other than I love you and I'm here for you in your corner, at that portion of her life, I'm not working out nine hours a day. I'm not counting my macronutrients. I have My dialogue is going to be significantly different. So I'm not going to bug you every day. You're still my friend. I love you. We'll talk all the time, but it's just a different dialogue. And so uh, once you have separated yourself from, from people that are holding you back, you'll realize there's certain times where I may be holding somebody back. Cause we're just in a different stage of our life and you're okay with it. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. So you don't invite her to pizza. And um, wing.
1: I, I wait till the off season.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. You did training. <laughs> yeah. I,
1: I wait till the off season. I, to a I, I took, I took her a <laughs> bottle of wine for Christmas and she was like, I I can't take this in the Olympic village or in the, in the Olympic housing. She's like, but I'm home again in a couple weeks. And, uh, I'll have it then. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's, it's the thoughts like that, right? You just, you, you acknowledge yeah. them, so.
0: So I was just looking at a point. So as a business owner, this was, this was really significant to me. This stuck out, um, that 34% of sales professionals turn over within the first two years of a new sales job. Um, that uh, It's pretty overwhelming. I think that was a, a statistic by the U.S. Labor Board. How do companies combat that, that turnover, that um, staggering statistics as a business owner? How does the company combat that? Yeah, well,
1: I think the first one is to accept that the problem is real. I've met sales leaders and business owners and entrepreneurs that say, I don't have a turnover issue. My sales team my sales team is great, and I, I challenge that. Now, it's 34% of sales professionals turnover within the first two years. One staggering fact that I also research is... 51% of the millennials that are salespeople within two years have already interviewed with another company. So that means one out of the two of your salespeople that are in the millennial age range have already interviewed with another company. How do you, how do you keep them right? You're, you're losing 34% half are interviewing somewhere else. That's within two years. And to recoup the investment from somebody turning over in two years is staggering, right? If you were to just to write how expensive that turnover dollar amount is, You would not let people out the door. So companies need to combat it in multiple ways. One, acknowledge it's a problem, but there's a three-part process, I think, that goes in retaining and developing and and, and keeping your sales force, right? One, there has to be a a level of, of gratitude that's expressed to the role of your sales team, of your salespeople. Whoever is selling your product or your service, they want a level of appreciation for them as an individual. Companies do a really good job at expressing gratitude For top performers, it's really easy to call the person that sold the most in your team or help build your business. Say, "Hey, man, great job, good job. You know, you're awesome. So excited for you to be here." But what about the person that's not performing? What about the person that's on the bottom? What about the person that's in the middle? So you have to express a level of gratitude and and thank people for their time and their service consistently. And sometimes that's that's in the face of a two minute ninety second conversation. I'll never forget when I had a VP of sales call me out of the blue, and I was pounding pavement. And I'm, Hello? Hey, man, I just want to let you know, dude, I'm really excited. I saw your numbers last month. You know, it looks like you just got above your uh, just above quota for the month. Hey, man, thanks for putting in your work, dude. I'm really busy, but I wanted to make this a phone call and not an email. I hung up the phone. And I was like, dude, he called me. I mean, I got 90 <laughs> seconds, but it, it, it's exciting. So there's that there's that level of gratitude that that comes with it. Um, I think the second part is developing people. And we have I've found And I don't want to say weeks. I'm not telling you, but I have found that people have different definitions of developing their people. So to retain your people, you have to develop them both professionally and personally. So companies say, oh, I have a development plan in place. They're in my management development program. They're they're in my uh, my future leaders development program. I'm going to teach them how to run this office. I'm going to teach them how to replace me. Well, not everybody wants to do that. Right, I don't. I don't want to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I don't, I don't want to be a CEO that sits and has direct ties to Wall Street. That's not my. That's not my passion right now. So if you're developing that way, that's not going to work for me. But if you develop somebody in their personal goals of life, right, you'll get them to stick around with you. So acknowledge that the time they have with you, using your sales career or your industry or your company. As a vehicle to help get this person what they want out of life, there's a book that's called The Dream Manager by Matthew Cali that talks about how he, you know, a a company reduced its turnover by hiring what they call the dream manager. They reduced their company by simply having a monthly meeting with the dream manager. They bring every employee in and they would say, "Okay, what are your dreams? What do you mean? What are my dreams? You know, I want to buy a home. Do you know how to do do you know how to go about buying a home? Not really. And so he introduced an entire home ownership program where he taught a class and he brought outside help to teach a class on how to to own a home and introduce that to that organization and it eliminated turnover. So I look at my team now and I say, how do I, how do I eliminate turnover? So I say, well, what do you want to get out of life? Like, what's, what's your, what's your goal? You know, I, I want to, I want to accomplish, I want to start this small business. Um, you know, I want to retire by this age. When's the last time you had a conversation with a financial advisor? Not one that's trying to sell you their service, but a true unbiased party that's just going to take a look at your portfolio. Maybe you don't know what a portfolio is. Have you had a conversation with that person? So I think you have to develop people both personally and professionally. And once you develop somebody personally, it's more valuable than professionally. Because you always remember the mentor that changed your life. And if as a company, you can change someone's personal life, the professional life will follow. But everybody wants mm-hmm. to focus on the professional development and not the personal development. And, and the last one, it kind of goes hand in hand with that. I think there has to be a level of vision that people buy into. They have to see the story. They have to see the struggle and they have to want to participate. And the only way they participate is by clear, transparent, direct vision. I look at the teams that I've been on and when I've wanted to follow and stick with somebody through thick and thin, it's because I believed in the vision. And organizations lose that, you know, the bigger an organization gets, the harder it is to sell that vision. So mm-hmm. as your organization grows, that vision has to trickle down. So if you're executive level, well, then your, your senior level people have to believe in that vision and they have to be better than the, than the CEO at selling that vision. And as you work your way down the org chart, each person has to be better at selling the vision uh, for people to believe in, to buy into. So it's a really, it's a three part process, gratitude, personal development or just development because it's personal, professional, and a clear vision that people buy into.
0: So I wish I could remember it right now. It was in one of our earlier podcasts, but there was a a big study that was done and it was multiple industries, multiple countries, and it was connecting why employees stay with an organization. And a lot of people think it's money. People think it's title. It's maybe on the job training, things like that. And overwhelmingly, and I wish I could quote the statistics exactly. I'll have to go back and look, but overwhelmingly it was whether they believed in the vision of the company. And what's interesting is, so I work with a lot of, um, businesses, sometimes smaller businesses under 10 million and, and, a lot of larger businesses as well. And so we talk about the core values. We always ask, well, what's your core values? And if you can't articulate them to me, then neither can your staff. And we use that statistics as... If you think your core values don't matter, let me tell you a big reason why people leave. Or let me rephrase that: let me tell you a big pe- reason why people stay. It's your values, your vision. You have to be able to communicate that. People have to know why they're showing up every day because it's not for a paycheck, though. Though many think it is, um, they'll stay. They'll keep showing up for that paycheck with you because they're going to get a paycheck from somewhere. Correct. Whether they're going to get a paycheck from you it's gonna be connected to your vision and your values. That's such a good point. I love that. Well, you
1: know, what's interesting you say that there, and, and I think about this. Is I've been recruited by startup companies, right? I'm, I'm in California, I'm in the West Coast, you have the Silicon Valley up north, they have the Los Angeles Silicon Beach down south. I've been recruited by, recruited by multiple startups. And you talk about selling a vision, find a 25 year old kid that just got funded to sell you his vision, and you know what? it works because you get people that are very successful to leave organizations that are stable to go to startups because they believe in that vision. There's no guarantee paycheck. My wife left a stable, large company for a startup a few years ago and the startup folded, but she left because of the vision. And so it was, and, and she had the confidence was like, well, if it fails, I can get a job elsewhere. But that vision caused her to leave what people are like, I can't believe you're leaving one of the largest companies in the world in your industry yeah, but I like this company better because the vision matches my vision. And that I'm so glad you said that. That's, that's, that's really interesting.
0: I want to go back to the dream manager thing. I freaking love this concept. I've never heard this concept before. I freaking love it. I'm going to read this book, Um, uh, because you're developing them in their path, not your own. Correct. Um, and that adds tremendous value to someone. I'm just, I'm, I'm envisioning, the idea of this dream manager and what this would look like in organizations, big or small. I mean, if it's a smaller organization, someone who's uh, who's thought you could be the dream manager. I mean, if in a smaller organization, um, you could have someone that has another responsibility, but that just has a particular skill set or ability that would lend itself to this role. But man, in the bigger organizations this would be huge. I mean, just adding tremendous value to, to your team and helping them along their path and their vision just on so many levels, but really dialing into what their goals are and being an advocate for their goals. Um, that's a huge value add to a team. I, I
1: think that's. I think that's one perk that's not in enough organizations. And, and you know, I, I've, I've heard Matthew Kelly speak. I mean, I don't, I don't know him personally, but I'm a big fan. I mean, he's written several books with that book, you know, I think it's 10, 15 years old. I mean, it's changed the way i manage people because I I do put that hat on for people that directly report to me. You know, I Mm -hmm. I become that dream manager because they're, you know, I like to create that circle of trust. Hey, you know, I have people that, you know, they work for me. They're like, hey, man, you know, my dream is to open up my own business in four years. Well, how much capital are you going to need to open your business? I don't know. Well, let's 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 put it together. So we put a plan in place and say, okay, here's the amount of capital you need. If you're going to give me four years, here's the results you have to get to get this capital. And I promise Hmm. you, once you hit these results, dude, I'll write your resignation letter for you because your dream is to go here. Wow. Right. And that's backwards thinking. I have management colleagues who are like, no, dude, like that, you know, no, they're supposed to work and, you know, bleed company colors. That's not true. That's, that's, that's the farthest thing from the truth. Dude, no, you want them to be a top performer. And you know what, if they're going to be a top performer for the three or four years that I have them, I'll take it because in that three or four years, they're going to top perform. They are going to get what they want out of this slice, And you know what? I'm going to get what I want for the time they have here. And yeah, I'll have to replace them in three or four years. But you know what? Go back to network. They're going to be extremely successful in this new business venture they help. And you know what? My network just gets bigger because I want to put more strong-minded, successful business people and entrepreneurs out in the world that are tied to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say that it connects to your why. So not just your corporate mm-hmm. why, um, but it also connects to your personal why, because it's clear that having an impact is, is a huge driver for you. That's a huge motivator that you want to have an impact and that you want to develop because what the way you're talking about how you manage your people, that's not just management. I mean, that's, it's, it's management, it's leadership, but you're putting a lot of heart into these people. Like you, obviously care about these people tremendously yeah
1: I, I would say you know i i wear my i wear my heart on my sleeve with my people my team knows me really well i mean my my direct team you know i i do you be hard pressed to find someone that couldn't say i can tell when things are going well things are going bad my emotional yeah i keep it in control i share you know but i tell people i'd rather share my vulnerabilities and be honest with you than pretend that i'm above because when i first started managing people i was like oh i, I would be here and I started losing the connection with people, and I'm like, "That's not really who I am, right? That's, that's not mm-hmm. my that's not my personality." If you if, if 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 I'm with you and you're just saying, "Hey, man, I'm having a really shitty day, dude," or, I'm sorry. If I'm having a really bad day, you know, can we just talk about something else? Yeah, I you know the fact that you brought that up to me, we can talk about it. Now, if that conversation happens over and over again, I am going to be like, "Hey, you know, we have some business to discuss, right?" But it it, it is wearing your heart on your sleeve, and I think people buy into that. It's, it's you know, it goes back to turnover. It's easier it's easy to quit a job. It's difficult to quit a friendship. So when your when mm. your manager has developed a level of friendship or a professional relationship, it's really hard to 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 quit that friendship. And I've told I've told people for years that work for me for any company in any role I've been in, and even now in my, my my own business, if we're gonna have this relationship, you're never gonna force me to choose between our friendship and our business relationship. Because the moment you force me to choose, you've already made the decision for me. Because we have, to, mm. we have to respect that there's a business component of this that we run. So as long as you don't do anything that violates the business component, you know, don't like ethics, you know, do something illegal, et cetera, don't, don't put me in that position because I'm never going to side on this side. As long as mm-hmm. I'm upfront about that, I've never had a problem with it.
0: Did someone model this for you or did you, I mean, was it mentors? Was it books that you've read? How did you adopt this?
1: A combination of a couple things. I attended a Jim Rohn seminar when I was 22 years old, was the very first time. So then uh, I got the I got a gift of Jim Rohn CDs. This ginormous at the time, I mean, there was just folders of CDs, I
0: have it too. and uh, I still have
1: it. You know, I don't even have a CD player, but I have a hard time. It's on my bookshelf. I'm like, I don't. I should throw this away, but you can't, but I, you can't quit can't, that friend. Yeah, I'm like, dude, think this guy changed my life. So a lot yeah, of a lot, of, this, a lot of those fundamentals came from there, and then I've had mentors in life that uh, that have really helped mold and shape me. You know that that conversation of "Hey, don't force me to choose." You know, I, somebody had that conversation with me many years ago, and I was like, "Oh, it's a really good conversation." You know what? I'm gonna have that with people <laughs> down the road.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna pick that up and put that in my tool belt. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So we talk a lot um at Pivot Me, obviously, about success habits, whether that's morning routines or things you always do personally, professionally. Do you have habits or routines that you that, that you do to set you up for success? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's um, you know, people have their their morning ritual, right? I have mine, and my morning ritual, you know, I, I, it takes a lot for me to violate my morning ritual. It's really simple. Before 7 a.m., there's nothing relevant for me to work on. Zero. So if I, I'm typically up between 515 and 530 every morning and in that morning time that I wake up, it's my time for myself. It's time for either quiet moments to myself. Um, sometimes if I get the opportunity I, I make breakfast, you know, if I'm at home for my wife and kids, um, if I'm on the road and I'm up in the morning, that's my time to, to, to personal development. So I typically either listen to a podcast, read a book, do something. Other than that's work related. No matter what it is, whether it's my personal brand, whether it's my in my corporate role, whether it's coaching clients, whatever it is, this is my time, and you're not going to get it. And I have found that if I don't dedicate that time to myself, I'm I'm out of sync the whole day. And uh, mm. my team knows that now. Some of them laugh at me because some of them will send me a text message like at six fifty, say, "Hey, I know you're not going to check this till seven, but when you do, can you call me?" <laughs> and and I. You know, there's times where I've seen the message. of like, no, this is my time. I'm not going to call you. You. So I even turned, put my phone on do not disturb. But that morning ritual to mentally prepare myself for the day is so big for me. And I end my morning ritual pretty much at the end of the same way every day. In the morning, I identify in order for me to have this day as a success. What are the three things that I need to accomplish? Sometimes it's work related. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's it's family right Uh, and you know i i also have you know i joke with my team but you know i joke with my wife there's times where one of those things in the morning for this day to be successful what has to happen my office has to be clean because (laughs) my office would be you know i have my my personal office and i get you know stacks of papers here files here folders here and so i'm like you know what this looks like a zoo so i simply just say okay I put it in my schedule. I'm going to spend the next two hours organizing this office. And I feel like I'm doing that on a monthly basis. I'm not the most, you know, it's a madness. You know, I've posted notes and stuff all over my office. But whatever it is. So as long as you identify, that's that's my big habit. I identify what I have to happen that day to feel like it was a productive day. And every day it's different. And before 7 a.m., it's no one's time but my own.
0: So what would you say to someone who's actively seeking that level of next level of success? So maybe they've got a measure of success. They know they're capable of more. What would you say to help them, you know, get to that next level of success?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is who is in your who is in your circle of influence that's going to help you get to that next level of success? Who's your team? Because nobody gets to the next level of success on their own. You have to have a team in place. And if you can't clearly identify who the team is that's going to help push you in place, you're not going to get there. So, it, you know, and it's, it's I sometimes I think it's backward thinking because everyone's like, oh, I want to be successful. I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. Well, yes, you're the person that's going to cross the finish line. But where's the coaches around you that are going to get you there? And if you don't have those mm-hmm. players identified that path to the finish line is much more difficult. You have to have a team in place. Every successful person has a team in place regardless of what industry. So if you want to get to that next level of success, you have to identify your team, assign roles and put them in place.
0: That's really good. Who is Anthony out- Garcia outside of outside of your business?
1: So, I'm a diehard Los Angeles sports fan and I may lose some <laughs> some of your listeners here, right? So I love the Dodgers. <laughs> I I love the Lakers. And I'm really embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed to say it, it was just a lonely role. I'm also a Los Angeles Chargers football fan, which is, I mean, I, I, I think there's a hundred of us and I, I have season tickets. I think I know them all. Right. So uh, I, when I'm not uh, working at, you know, you, I, I love attending the sporting events, taking my family to sporting events. Um, I enjoy the mental stimulation that high stakes competitive poker gives. So I, I do, I don't play as much at the higher stakes as I used to because Like anything, it's a skill, and so some of the guys I was playing with were professionals that would play, you know, five days a week. And here I come for two days a month. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna eat my lunch money. But I still enjoy playing that game because it's it's mental mental competition. And then you know, I I enjoy a a physical fitness regimen. Um, So I'm starting to work back out with my wife. I was really engaged and committed to Olympic weightlifting. I had a shoulder surgery, kind of threw me off, and so it's my third shoulder surgery. And so each one puts me in like a couple year layoff from lifting weights. And so we just started that regimen again. Uh, But once that's that's going, that's probably like my full time stress relief outside of work.
0: What does being successful allow you to do? What do you get to do because you've been successful? (laughs) So
1: I think the number one thing that that being successful has allowed me to do is to provide a life for the family that I wanted as a kid. And 100%, that that's that's and when I say that, you know, it's not the vacations or the home or or the materialistic things that that are there. That's a perk. It's fun. It's nice. Everyone deserves to do that. But that's not what success gets me. Success gets me the opportunity to put my kids in forced adversity. I forced adversity in their life because as a kid, I had real adversity. I mean, I I had hey, you have a sporting event, but your cleats don't fit and I don't have money to get you one. How are you going to make it work? I'm going to put tennis shoes, bomb. Adversity, right? So I think success gives me the opportunity to, to put forced adversity in, in life for my kids. And I think success gives me the opportunity to look at a bigger picture and raise that level of success, right? I think once somebody becomes successful and they feel they've arrived, they naturally start to regress. And so once mm-hmm. you become successful, you level your network up you find other successful people you're like oh man I gotta get... <laughs> i'm not at that level i gotta keep going and that's what success has been. it's really yeah. it's 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 helped create a network of people who continue to motivate and inspire me and you know a few years ago um i found myself into like a, like an 18 month rut where i was the smartest one i was the most successful one, i was the one uh that was kind of the leader within my network and and uh i started to regress and i didn't like who i became and that's where i was like okay i need to take this level of success i have i know some people i I need to start sending messages out and just raise my level up and slowly but surely I raised my level up and I started introducing to to meeting new people and having conversations. And eventually it's, it put me into you know the group that I met you in. I mean, that was all through previous success was just by, OK, let's just keep raising it, raising it and raising it.
0: It takes a level of self awareness to realize you're doing that, like kudos to you for going uh you know because i i always I always tell my team it's okay to have the measuring stick out as long as it's in your yard, mm-hmm. and, and people think like there's a lot of talk about oh, don't measure yourself against somebody else and i I take it in a different tone of of when we measure ourselves against someone else, especially for high performers, we'll always win yeah. Like, that's why you got to stay in your own lane. Like you bring out the measuring stick and you stick it in your yard, not your neighbor's yard, because it's about you getting better and stop. If the second you start looking at your neighbor, then you're screwing up because whether that's, oh, comparison is the thief of joy. Like Brene Brown says, there's that side of it. But the flip side of that is if you're a high performer, if you've got the measuring stick out, you might be more motivated than that person. You might be more successful, that person, you might have way more hustle. And so you're going, oh yeah, I'm killing it. But it's got to be in your yard. You got to outgrow you. You got to keep getting better. And there's so much fulfillment in the progression of you. But the second we stop progressing, we don't always realize when we stop progressing. So uh, yeah. yeah, kudos to you for recognizing it and then doing something about it.
1: No, I love the analogy. I think the measuring stick is great as long as the measuring stick doesn't lead to jealousy, right? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not jealous or envious. I don't wish harm against people who are more successful. I just want that. I want that <laughs> for myself. So you're there. I want that. And you know what? and I truly believe this, there's enough business for everyone to be successful. So I'm, you know, I I have friends that are more successful in their sales career or or their book career or their speaking career. And you know what? I look at them. I'm excited for them. I'm excited every time I see them getting a new gig. I want that. And I'm coming for it. Not after (laughs) you, but I'm coming for that. Whoever that is, that's what I'm coming for.
0: So, I want to slice the pie just yeah, like yours. I'm not it. taking the pie out of your mouth, but I want my piece too. You know, just
1: we, if you have a table for four, we could just add a little seat. I'm gonna be the fifth one right there, buddy. I'll, I'll squeeze in.
0: I love it. I love it. So, so tell us what's next for you.
1: What's next for me? Catapulting Commission is going to be a best-selling book, an international best-selling book. Uh, we're also launching a workbook, a audio book, and the Catapulting Commission's course. So I'm going to take that as my entry to this market of personal development, sales execution, sales leadership. So that's the really next step is to bring this to market, provide a level of value that creates others to say, okay, the art and skill of salesmanship is a craft that develops practice and it needs to be approached with a level of respect for the profession. Meaning Mm -hmm. I have to have a clear mental approach. I have to have the environment in place all before I ever make my first phone call to sell my product. And- So that's that's next is bringing it to market. And as we as we bring that to market, I'm looking to to create a completely separate sales training organization that does teach some of these principles and some does teach these fundamentals and helps organizations take your complacent sales syndromes reps and give them that motivation to get to the next step. Because that group that has the ability to achieve more but just doesn't do it. That's the difference on a PL statement. Your bottom feeders are your bottom feeders. The people who aren't going to perform, they're not going to perform. Your people who always are going to perform, they're always going to perform. It's that group that knows how to perform but just chooses not to. Mm,
0: so that's where that's I'm targeting.
1: Uh, everything will be available on either catapultingcommissions.com or on amazon.com. So um, it'll be, be there for everybody.
0: That's awesome. All right. So where, where do we go to find you? How do people connect with Anthony Garcia?
1: You can find me at anthonypgarcia.com. Or you can find me on social media, Anthony P Garcia 99 uh, That's my handle and anywhere you find me.
0: That is perfect. Anthony, thanks for being on the show. This was a great conversation. So informative. I, I found myself taking uh, notes that I'm going to reflect mm-hmm. back on. And I think it's just a tremendous value you've brought to the listeners today. This has been fun.
1: Well, I'm excited, April. Thanks for having me, dude. And uh, I'll touch base with you soon.
0: All right. Have a great day. Bye-bye.